Part Three, Chapter Five of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter Five. The decision was no sooner made than it was carried into execution. The order was given to the gondoliers, and instantly the long dark gondola swung round disengaging itself from the tangle of surrounding craft and headed for the quieter spaces of the middle stream. The Palazzo Ugacini was on the Grand Canal, and as they glided westward past the beautiful church of the Santa Maria della Salute, Bernard leant forward and directed her attention to their destination. "'There is the palace of the Ugacini,' he said. "'It contains some of the finest frescoes in Italy.' It was bought up some years ago by an enterprising Frenchman who lets it out in sections. Just now Lady Frances Hope is the proud occupier of the first floor. With a movement of interest she followed his glance looking silently at the long line of irregular imposing buildings that stretched away before her. "'What a beautiful old place,' she said. "'Are those your friend's windows?' She indicated the first floor of the palace from the open windows of which a warm stream of light poured downwards upon the water. Yes, I expect they're playing bridge up there. Francis is an enthusiast. By the way, do you gamble, Mrs. Milbank? Involuntarily, Clodagh started and looked round. Then, as she met Barnard's bland, amiable face, she blushed at her own emotions. Oh, no, she said in a low voice. I, I never play cards. Seracold looked up quickly. What? he exclaimed. You don't play bridge? I have never played any game of cards since I was a child. The three men looked at her in unfeigned surprise. Not really, Mrs. Milbank. Sarah Call's eyes were wide with astonishment. Really? Quite really? Why, you are ethereal, Mrs. Milbank, Barnard said laughingly as the gondola glided up to the palace steps. The passport to humanity nowadays is an inordinate love of risk. Clodagh laughed nervously. "'Then I must be inhuman,' she said. The gondola stopped and Lord Deerhurst rose. As he offered her his hand he looked searchingly into her face. "'Only time can prove the truth of that statement, Mrs. Milbank,' he said in his thin voice. In the mystery of her surroundings the words seemed to Clodagh to possess a curious, almost a prophetic ring, and their echo lingered in her ears as she stepped from the gondola and entered the palace. But she was young and to the young action must ever outweigh suggestion. She had scarcely mounted the old marble staircase before the excitement of her impending ordeal sent all other ideas spinning into oblivion. There was adventure and experience in every succeeding moment. At the head of the stairs they were met by an English manservant. He stepped forward gravely, as if accustomed to the arrival of late callers, and relieving Clodagh of her cloak, ushered her down a long corridor and through an arched doorway hidden by a velvet curtain. The salon into which they were shown was large and high-sealed. The walls displayed some allegorical studies in the fresco work of which Bernard had spoken. The floor was bare of carpet and highly polished, reflecting the elaborately designed but scanty furniture and the wonderful glass chandeliers that hung from the ceiling, and in the three long windows that opened on the canal stood groups of statuary. During the moment that followed their entrance Clodagh almost believed that the room was unoccupied, so wide and formal did it look. 
but a second glance convinced her of her mistake. At its further end four persons were playing cards at a small table partly sheltered from the rest of the room by a massive leather screen. When their names were announced no one at the table moved or even looked round. But immediately afterwards there was a stir amongst the players, and the light sound of cards thrown hastily down, followed by a quick laugh in a woman's voice. "'Game and rubber! Well done, partner! How does the score stand, Tory?' The owner of the laugh rose from her seat and almost instantly turned to the door, revealing to Clodagh's curious eyes a strong, energetic face redeemed from ugliness by a pair of intensely intelligent eyes and a mouth that displayed strong white teeth. It was the somewhat disconcerting face of a clever woman to whom life represents an undeniable, if an invigorating, struggle. Seeing the little group by the doorway, she hurried forward with an almost masculine assurance. "'You poor dear people!' she exclaimed in her strong voice. "'A thousand apologies. We were on the point of finishing a most exciting rubber.' Her voice broke off short as her eyes rested on Clodagh. "'Who is this, Barney?' she asked interestingly. Barnard stepped forward, laying his hand smilingly on Clodagh's arm. "'This, my dear Francis,' he said, "'is a new friend that I want you to make, the wife of an old friend of mine. You may have met her husband, Mr. Milbank, one of the Somerset Milbanks. Poor Sammy knew him well.' Lady Frances Hope puckered her strong, assertive eyebrows. "'I believe I do remember meeting a Mr. Milbank, but I scarcely think.' She looked scrutinizingly at Clodagh. "'Oh, yes, it's the same, it's the same.' Barnard's interruption was somewhat hasty. "'Mr. Milbank is a great archaeologist. He and Mrs. Milbank are only in Venice for a week. I had intended bringing you to call formally at their hotel, but circumstances—' Here Clodagh broke in. "'You must please, please forgive my doing such a very extraordinary thing as this,' she said. "'It was all Mr. Barnard's fault.' but Lady Frances Hope cut the explanation short by holding out her hand. "'You are extremely welcome,' she said cordially, "'and if the truth must be told, I owe you a debt of gratitude for saving me an afternoon call. It's a hundred times pleasanter to meet like this. Now, let me see. You play bridge, of course. We can make up another four. She glanced over her guest with an organizing eye. Clodagh stepped forward deprecatingly, and cast a beseeching look at Barnard. But in the slight pause that followed it was Lord Deerhurst who came to her rescue. "'Mrs. Milbank has just been confessing to us that she never plays cards,' he said smoothly. "'If you will go on with your game, Lady Frances, I shall do my best to amuse her.' He turned his unemotional glance from one to the other. The surprise that his announcement had brought to their hostess's face changed instantly to an expression of hospitality. "'No, no, indeed,' she cried. "'I would infinitely prefer to talk to Mrs. Bilbank. "'Come,' she added, smiling at Clodagh, "'come and let me introduce you to these bridge-playing people. "'Perhaps they will convert you.' She laughed and, followed by the four, moved across the salon. At their approach the three at the card-table, two women and a man, turned to look at them, and the latter, a square-built, thick-set youth wearing a pince-nez and possessing a quick, inquisitive manner, rose to his feet. "'Mrs. Milbank,' said Lady Frances, "'this is Mr. Victor Luard. Miss Luard, Mrs. Bathurst.' Luard bowed, and the two women looked at Clodagh, each acknowledging the introduction after her own fashion, 
Miss Luard gave a quick friendly nod. Mrs. Bathurst, a slow and graceful inclination of the head, accompanied by a faint, insincere smile. "'Are you a bridge player?' she asked, raising a pair of pretty languid brown eyes to Clodagh's. "'I wish so much you would take my place. I've been having the most appalling luck.' Her glance wandered on to Seracald, Barnard, and Deerhurst. "'Ah, here is Lord Deerhurst,' she cried in a suddenly animated voice. "'Lord Deerhurst, do come and tell me what you would have done with a hand like this.' She picked up her scattered cards and began to sort them. Then, with a graceful movement, she drew her skirts aside and indicated a vacant chair that stood beside her own. Lord Deerhurst hesitated, lifted his eyeglass, and scrutinized her pretty pink and white face, then languidly dropped into the empty chair. At the same moment Clodagh, Seracald, Luard, and his sister fell into conversation, and Lady Frances and Barnard moved away together towards one of the open windows. For a quarter of an hour the formation of the party remained unchanged. Then a slight incident caused a distraction in the assembly. Clodagh, who had shaken off her first shyness and was beginning to enjoy the conversation of her new acquaintance, heard the curtain at the arched entrance drawn back, and looking round was surprised to see two servants enter, solemnly carrying a table and a painted board, which they proceeded to set up in the middle of the room. Her wonder and curiosity were depicted on her face. Her Luard looked at her quickly and interestedly. "'Don't you know what that is, Mrs. Milbank?' he asked. "'Hasn't Barney told you of Lady Frances' famous roulette? Lady Frances,' he called. "'Come and initiate Mrs. Milbank.' At the words everyone turned and looked at Clodagh, and Lord Deerhurst, with a murmured word to Mrs. Bathurst, rose and came round the card-table. "'Are you going to tempt the gods?' he asked in his peculiar voice. Clodagh looked round, a little embarrassed by the general interest. "'Well, I—I I suppose I should like to see roulette played,' she admitted guardedly. He bent his head and looked at her with his cold, penetrating smile. "'Ah, I see,' he said softly. "'Judicious reservations.' But at that moment Lady Frances crossed the room, and pausing by the roulette table, set the ball spinning. "'Come along, people,' she cried gaily. "'Fortune smiles.' They all laughed and strolled across the room. "'Come along,' Lady Frances urged again. "'Come, Rose.' She smiled at Mrs. Bathurst. "'Unlucky at bridge, lucky at roulette. Come, Tory. Come, Val.' She glanced from Luard to Seracald. There was another amused laugh, and all the party, with the exception of Clodagh, stepped forward and placed one or many coins upon the table. Lady Frances' eyes were quick to detect the exception. With her fingers poised above the board, she waited smilingly. "'Won't you stake, Mrs. Milbank?' she asked. Clodagh blushed and stepped back shyly. At the same instant Seracald moved forward to her side. "'Oh, Mrs. Milbank, but you must!' he cried. Again confusion covered Clodagh, as all eyes were turned upon her. "'No, please,' she said. "'I—I I think I'd rather not.' Barnard laughed suavely. Mrs. Milbank is wise, he said. She wants to see which way the gods are pointing. Then Mrs. Milbank is unwise. The gods are jealous beings. We must not treat them with suspicion. I'll stake for her. It was Lord Deerhurst who spoke, and regardless of Clodagh's quick, half-frightened expostulation, he stepped forward out of the little circle and placed a gold coin on the number thirteen. A moment later Lady Frances gave a short amused laugh 
and with a dexterous movement of the fingers set the ball whizzing. To Clodagh it was a supreme, an extraordinary moment. Until Lord Deerhurst had made the stake, until the first click of the spinning ball had struck upon her ear, she had been conscious of only one feeling, a prejudiced innate dread of every game, whether of chance or skill, upon which money could be staked. But the simple placing of the coin, the simple turning of the pivot, had marked for her a psychological moment. With a quick catching of the breath she stepped involuntarily forward, aware of but one fact, the keen exhilarating knowledge that the stopping of the ball must mean loss or gain, individual loss or gain. During the dozen seconds that it spun round the circle she stood silent. Then a faint sound of uncontrollable excitement slipped from between her lips. Hers was the winning number. As in a dream she extended her hand and took the little heap of money from the fingers of Luard, who had come to Lady Frances' assistance. Then, on the instant that the coins touched her palm, her excitement evaporated. Her sense of elation fell away, to be succeeded by the first instinctive shrinking that had swayed her imagination. Acting purely upon impulse, she turned to Lord Deerhurst, and before he could remonstrate, pressed the money into his hand. "'Please take it,' she said urgently. "'Please take it. It isn't mine. It oughtn't to be mine. I—I I don't wish to play.' End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 The little incident, trivial in itself, damped the general ardor for roulette. After a dozen turns of the wheel, Lady Frances declared herself satisfied. "'Mrs. Milbank has regenerated us for the moment,' she cried. "'I can't play roulette tonight, but our turn will come, Mrs. Milbank. We will be revenged on you.' Her shrewd, smiling glance passed rapidly over Clodagh's face. Again the whole company laughed. "'Mrs. Milbank is a feminine Sir Galahad,' said Luard. "'By the way, Lady Frances, when is our irreproachable knight to honor Venice with his presence?' He turned and looked banteringly at his hostess. Lady Frances smiled. "'Oh, any day now,' she returned. "'But aren't you rather incorrigible?' "'So Sir Galahad thinks,' he retorted, unabashed. "'Is he an acquaintance of yours, Mrs. Milbank?' Clodagh smiled uncertainly and Lady Frances laughed. "'How ridiculous of you to expect Mrs. Milbank to read your riddles,' she said sharply. "'The person this very disrespectful young man is speaking of, Mrs. Milbank, is Sir Walter Gore.' "'The most admirable Sir Walter Gore,' interjected Luard. Lady Frances' sallow face flushed very slightly. "'Sir Walter Gore,' she went on, ignoring the interruption, "'who is only twenty-nine, has been ten times round the world, and is imbued with the deepest contempt for all modern social things. She laughed again as she finished, but a fleeting change of expression had passed over her face. Clodagh looked up smilingly. "'And where is the likeness to me?' she asked. "'Oh, you are both above mere human temptations, Mrs. Milbank,' Luard broke in irrepressibly. Lord Deerhurst, who had been listening to the conversation, lifted his eyeglass. "'But then Sir Walter Gore has been ten times round the world,' he remarked in his thin, dry voice, and this is Mrs. Milbank's first visit to Venice. Again they all laughed, and Clodagh colored. "'You think my stoicism would not wear well?' she asked. Deerhurst looked at her searchingly. "'Stoicism may be born of many characteristics,' he said. "'I am not in a position to say from what yours springs, but,' he lowered his voice, "'I do not think you are a natural stoic.' 
She laughed and glanced uneasily round the little company, already beginning to break up into groups of two and three. Observing the look, Lady Frances turned to her tactfully. "'Come, Lord Deerhurst,' she cried. "'We are getting too serious. If you must philosophize, take Mrs. Milbank onto the balcony, where she will have something to distract her thoughts. For myself I want to hear Valentine sing. Val,' she called, "'come to the piano and make some music.' I'm surfeited with stringed instruments and Italian voices. She moved across the salon, and Lord Deerhurst turned to Clodagh. May I follow our hostess's suggestion? May I talk philosophy on the balcony? She smiled. The slight strain of which she had been conscious ever since the incident of the roulette lifted suddenly, and her earlier sensation of elated excitement returned. Yes, if you like, she responded brightly. The balcony sounds very tempting and as for the philosophy I can promise to listen, if I can't promise to understand. She smiled afresh and crossed the wide room, Deerhurst following closely. As she passed the group of statuary and stepped through the open window, Sarah called struck a chord or two on the piano, and an instant later his voice, a full strong voice, intensely passionate and youthful, drifted across the salon and out into the night. At the first note Clodagh halted surprised and enchanted by the sound, and sinking silently into one of the balcony chairs rested one arm on the iron railing. The music Sarah called sang was French, and possessed much of the distinction that marks that nation's art. The song was a hymn to life and its indispensable coadjutors, youth and love, and it went with the peculiar lilt that stirred the blood and stimulated the fancy. He sang it as it should be sung, easily and arrogantly, for, as frequently happens with those who possess voices, he could express in music thoughts, ideas, and emotions that never crossed his own selfish, somewhat narrow soul. Clodagh, staring down into the dark waters in an attitude of rapt attention, drank in the song to its last note, and as the final vibration died away she looked round at Deerhurst with an expression infinitely softened and enhanced. How beautiful, she said. Oh, how beautiful. Deerhurst, who had seated himself beside her, leant forward and rested his own arm upon the balcony railing. It's not the song that is beautiful, Mrs. Milbank, but the thoughts it has awakened in you. Clodagh looked at him in silent question. She was still under the spell of the music and saw nothing to resent in his cold gaze. You were the instrument, he went on in the same lowered voice. The notes were not played upon the piano, but upon your brain. Your brain is a network of sensitive strings waiting to be played on by every factor in life, music, color, sunshine, emotion. His tone sank. Clodagh glanced quickly at his tall, thin figure seated so close to her own, and at the wax-like inscrutable face showing through the dusk. You seem to know me better than I know myself she said uncertainly. He watched her intently for a moment, then he leant forward his long pale fingers, toying with the ribbon of his eyeglass. I do know you better than you know yourself. She gave a little embarrassed laugh. Then explain me to myself. Again he seemed to study her. Then he leant back in his chair with a decisive movement. No, he said, no, not now. In a year or two, or even three perhaps, but not now. She laughed again, and unconsciously a note of relief underran her laugh, a relief that, by a natural sequence of emotion, 
brought a fresh reaction to the coquetry of an hour ago. With a quick turn of her head she looked up at him. "'But how shall I find you in a year or two or three? She was distinctly conscious that the words held a challenge, but the thought was fraught with the new intoxication that the evening had created. With a swift movement he bent closer to her. "'The world is very small, Mrs. Milbank, when one desires to make it so.' In the half-light of the balcony his pale eyes seemed to search hers. Involuntarily she blushed, but her glance met his steadily enough. "'Not until one has been ten times rounded,' she reminded him. He laughed his thin, amused laugh, then suddenly he became grave again. "'Don't you feel,' he said, "'that when we desire a thing very greatly our own will-power may bend circumstances?' Her eyes faltered, and her gaze moved to the gondolas flitting silently below them. "'I think I have given up desiring things greatly,' she said, in a low, uneven voice. Deerhurst's eyelids narrowed. "'Would it be presumptuous to ask why?' "'No, oh, no!' "'But you will not throw light upon my darkness?' She turned her head, and once more her gaze rested on his face. "'No,' she said softly, "'it isn't that. It is that I don't believe I could enlighten you, even if I would. I am a puzzle to myself.' The deeper a riddle, the more tempting its solution. Very quietly he drew still nearer, until his foot touched the hem of her skirt. The action, more than the words, startled her. With a little laugh she drew back into her seat. "'Perhaps it is no riddle after all,' she said quickly. "'Perhaps it is the lack of human nature, the likeness to Mr. Luard's Sir Galahad.' She laughed again nervously. Then suddenly her own words suggested to her a new and less dangerous channel of talk. "'When is this wonderful person to be in Venice?' she asked. "'I should like to see him.' But Lord Deerhurst had no intention of allowing another man's name to interfere with his pleasure. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said earnestly, "'may I ask you another question, a serious one? Not till you've answered mine. But this is personal, personal to you and me. The other is not.' He bent over her chair, and seemingly by accident his hand brushed her sleeve. "'Mrs. Milbank.' But even as his thin voice articulated her name, a shadow fell across the lighted window between them, and Sarah called, characteristically easy and nonchalant in his movements, stepped onto the balcony. Clodagh turned with a short, faint laugh. The beating of her heart was uneven, and her face felt hot. "'Mr. Sarah she said impulsively, "'when is Sir Walter Gore coming to Venice? I have been asking Lord Deerhurst, but he cannot, or will not, tell me.' Deerhurst, who at his nephew's approach had drawn quietly back into his seat, looked up with perfect composure. "'Yes, Valentine,' he said smoothly, "'I believe Gore has been making an impression by proxy.' Sarah called laughed. "'Really,' he said, "'how interesting. I shall look forward to the meeting in the flesh.' Again he laughed, as at something intensely amusing, and as Clodagh turned towards him doubtfully she saw him shoot a swift satirical glance at his uncle. "'Why?' she asked quickly. "'Why should our meeting be interesting?' Once more a vague sense of antagonism assailed her, a vague distrust of this new atmosphere. Sarakald answered at once in his light ingratiating tone. "'For no reason, Mrs. Milbank, that you can possibly cavil at.' "'But for what reason?' Her glance rested inquiringly on his face. "'Do tell me. 
I hate things that I cannot understand.' Deerhurst smiled a little cynically. "'A very youthful sentiment,' he murmured. "'The older one grows, the more one seeks the incomprehensible.' His eyes rested upon her with a fixed regard. For a space she sat very still, attempting no rejoinder. Then, as if suddenly moved to decisive action, she rose and turned towards the lighted salon. "'It's very late,' she said quickly. "'I must think about getting home.' Serikal stepped aside, and Deerhurst, who had risen with her, moved forward. But with a swift gesture that ignored them both, she crossed the balcony and stepped through the open window. After she had left them, the two men stood for a moment looking at each other. Then, with an elaborately careless gesture, Lord Deerhurst raised his eyeglass and peered out across the dark canal. "'Rather a pleasant little gathering to-night,' he said casually. "'Rose Bathurst looks particularly well.' Seracalt's lips parted, then pursed themselves together while he cast one comprehensive glance at his uncle's stiff back. "'Oh, yes, yes, quite.' he rejoined vaguely. Then, very swiftly, he turned and hurried across the salon after Clodagh. She was bidding her hostess good night as he reached her side, and his attentive glance noted her heightened color and her nervously alert manner. "'Tomorrow night, then,' Lady Frances was saying, and he saw Clodagh nod and smile. "'Tomorrow night,' she repeated. "'Mr. Barnard, are you ready?' As she looked round for her cavalier, Sarah called stepped softly to her side. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said, "'you will not discard my uncle's gondola. He is waiting to know if we may convey you home.' She looked up at him with a faint suggestion of coldness and distrust. Then, across the silence of her indecision, the low notes of the Venetian night music broke forth again as the musician's gondola passed the Palazzo Ugacini on its way homeward. For one moment it seemed to sweep across the salon through the open windows. Then it faded into the distance as the boat passed on up the canal. At the sound Clodagh's voice involuntarily softened, her lips parted, and she smiled. "'Very well,' she acquiesced below her breath. "'Tell Lord Deerhurst that he may take me home.'" End of Chapter 6 Chapter 7 During the night that followed, Clodagh's excited thoughts scarcely permitted her to sleep but with that extraordinary reserve of strength that springs from the combination of youth and health, she rose next morning as fresh and untired as though she had enjoyed unbroken rest. Coming downstairs at half-past eight, the first person she encountered was Milbank entering the hotel from the terrace, and spurred by her own exuberant spirits, roused to a sense of general goodwill by her own rosy outlook upon life, she went quickly forward to greet him. "'Good morning, James,' she said. I hope you haven't been tiring yourself. It struck her as an after-impression that he looked slightly worn and fatigued. As he took her hand he smiled, gratified by her concern. Not at all, my dear, he responded. Not at all. I have had an hour's excursion with Mr. Tomes. I assure you I had no idea that the byways of Venice were so interesting. All Venice is heavenly." Clodagh's glance wandered across the terrace to the canal, radiant in the early light. Milbank raised his head, arrested by the fervor of her tone. "'Then you, you enjoyed yourself last night?' he ventured with unusual penetration. "'Oh, so much!' She turned to him with a glowing smile that betrayed a warm desire for universal confidence and sympathy. "'So much! Mr. Barnard and the tall, dark-haired boy that you met last night 
took me round the canals in the most beautiful gondola belonging to Lord Deerhurst. We saw all the interesting people from the hotels and heard the music, and afterwards Mr. Barnard brought me to the Palazzo Uccini and introduced me to Lady Frances Hope. She was charmingly kind and hospitable, and made me promise to go again to-night, and to bring you. Milbank's face fell. But, my dear, he began deprecatingly, oh, you must come, you must. Lady Frances Hope feels sure she has met you before. You must come. Milbank looked distressed. But, my dear. Yes, I know you hate society, but just this once I, I wish you to come. She made the appeal with a sudden anxious gesture, born of a very subtle, a very instinctive motive, a motive that had for its basis an obscure and quite unacknowledged sense of self-protection. Milbank, materialist-born, heard only the words, noting nothing of the under-meaning. "'But, my dear,' he expostulated, "'the thing is, is impossible. Mr. Angelo Tomes has promised to expound his theories to me after dinner tonight. He looked at her nervously. She was silent for a minute or two, suddenly and profoundly conscious that in all the radiant glory of her surroundings she stood alone. At the painful consciousness she felt her throat swell, but with a defiant refusal to be conquered by her feelings she gave a quick, high laugh. "'Oh, very well,' she cried, "'very well, as you like.' And without looking at him again she turned and entered the coffee-room of the hotel. Having partaken very hastily of her morning meal, she returned to the terrace where, among the early loungers, she found Barnard reading his English newspapers. Seeing her, he threw the papers down, jumped to his feet, and came forward with evident pleasure. "'Good morning,' he said cordially. "'Good morning. You look as fresh as a flower after last night's dissipation.' She took his hand and met his suave smile with a sense of relief. "'Good morning,' she returned softly. "'Have you seen James?' He breakfasted ours ago. Yes, he said, oh, yes. I was talking to him just now. He has gone to write letters. To write letters. There was no curiosity and very little interest audible in Clodagh's tone. So he said. And you? What are you going to do? She looked up and smiled again. To idle, she said. I have an inherited gift for idling. Barnard smiled, then glanced along the terrace with an air of pretended secrecy. Take me into partnership, he said in a whisper. My clients don't know it, but I'm constitutionally the laziest beggar alive. Do let me idle in your company for half an hour? The canals are delightful in the early morning. He indicated the flight of stone steps round which one or two gondolas were hovering in expectation of a fair. Clodagh's glance followed his, and her face insensibly brightened. I should love it, she said. Truly? She nodded. Right then the thing is done. He hurried forward, and with a little thrill of pleasurable anticipation she saw one of the loitering gondolas glide up to the steps. For the first few moments after they had entered the boat she was silent, for in the iridescent morning light Venice made a new appeal. Then gradually, insidiously, as the charm of her surroundings began to soothe her senses, the encounter with Milbank melted from her mind and the subtle environment bred of last night's adulation rose again, turning the world golden. As they passed the Palazzo Ugocini she looked up at the closed windows of the first floor. Then, almost immediately, she turned to her companion. "'Mr. Barnard,' she said suddenly, "'I want to ask you a question. 
I want you to explain something, and Barnard, closely studious of her demeanor, felt insensibly that her mood had changed, that by a fine connection of suggestions she was not the same being who had stepped into the gondola from the hotel steps. With a genial movement he bent his head. "'Command me,' he said. Before replying she took another swift glance at the closed windows. Then she turned again and met his eyes. "'Tell me why this friend of Lady Frances Hope's is called Sir Galahad.' He smiled. "'Gore?' he said with a slightly amused surprise. "'I didn't know you were interested in Gore.' "'I am not. But please tell me. I want to know.' His smile broadened. The nickname surely explains itself. "'Somebody with an ideal. Somebody above temptation?' "'Precisely.' She pondered over this reply for a moment. Then she opened a fresh attack. "'Then why should Lord Deerhurst and Mr. Serracold have smiled when they spoke of his meeting me?' Barnard looked up in unfeigned astonishment. Then he laughed. "'Upon my word, Mrs. Milbank,' he cried, "'you are absolutely unique.' Clodagh flushed. For one second she wavered on the borderland of offense. Then her mood, her sense of the ridiculous and the sunny atmosphere of the morning, conquered. She responded with a laugh. "'I suppose I'm not like other people,' she said, "'for which you should say grace every hour of your life.' Barnard turned and looked into her glowing face. "'But I'll satisfy your curiosity. Gore is known in his own set as a man who obstinately, and against all reason, refuses to believe in, well, for instance, in the interesting young married woman. Clodagh's lips parted. But what? she began impetuously. Then she stopped. Barnard continued to look at her. Isn't the inference of the smile somewhat obvious? Her glance fell. Oh, she said. Oh, I suppose, I suppose I see. Precisely. But surely, she began afresh. Then again intuition interfered though this time to a different end. It was not the moment, it was not the atmosphere, in which to parade one's sentiments. With the too ready facility of her nation for adapting itself to environment, she laughed suddenly and gaily at her own passing crudery, and raised a bright face to Barnard's. "'And when he meets these interesting young married women?' she asked amusedly. "'Ah, there he dubs himself Sir Galahad. Some people call him a saint for keeping his eyes on the ground. Other call him a sinner for not picking up what he sees there. In reality he is neither sinner nor saint, but just that inevitable creation, a man who is self-sufficing. While he spoke, and for some time after he had ceased to speak, Clodagh sat silent. She was leaning over the side of the gondola and looking down into the calm water, her warm face touched by a mischievous expression her hazel eyes half-closed. At last she spoke, but without raising her head. "'And you are all waiting for the person who will make him see the need for someone else.' She waited for Barnard's answer, but it did not come. Sensitive to the silence she raised her head. Then her self-consciousness left her, superseded by curiosity. As she looked up she saw her companion lean forward and wave a cheerful greeting to the occupant of a gondola approaching them from the direction of the railway station. Involuntarily she changed her position, and her glance followed his. The passing of the two gondolas occupied no more than a minute, but
but the incidents comprised in some minutes remain with us all our lives. The approaching boat was a large one rowed by two gondoliers, for though it had only one passenger it carried a pile of luggage much travel-worn. Clodagh's eyes noted this, but they did so very briefly, for instantly the gondola drew level with her own, her glance lifted itself to the owner of the luggage, the man to whom Barnard had waved his greeting. She saw him with great distinctiveness, for the early light in Italy is peculiarly penetrating, and her first thought, a purely instinctive one, was that he possessed a sailor's face. His strong, clean-cut features suggested a keen and intimate relationship with natural elements, his healthy clear skin was tanned by sun and wind, and his eyes looked out upon the world with a quiet reliance that seems a reflection of the steadfast ocean. The first impression of the man was vaguely daunting. There was something self-contained, even cold, in the erect pose of his tall, muscular figure, in the manner in which he held his head. Then, quite unexpectedly, his critic gained a new impression of him. As the gondolas passed each other, he leaned forward in his seat, and his lips parted in a very pleasant smile. "'Ubiquitous as usual, Barnard,' he called in a strong, fresh voice. "'I might have known you would be the first man I should run across.' He raised his cap, and Clodagh saw that his hair was crisp, close-cut, and very fair, giving an agreeable touch of youthfulness to his sunburnt face. Barnard laughed and responded with some words of welcome. The stranger smiled and nodded. "'Come round and see me this afternoon,' he cried as the gondolas drew apart. "'I'm staying at the Denili.' "'Who was that?' Clodagh asked involuntarily, as the stranger's boat glided out of sight. Then she blushed suddenly. "'Why are you laughing?' she demanded. Barnard smiled. "'I am not laughing, Mrs. Milbank,' he murmured. "'I assure you I am not laughing. It is the merest smile at nature's little bit of stage management.' that interestingly bronzed young Englishman is Sir Walter Gore. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 This little incident, this small and yet significant interlude in Clodagh's day of newborn freedom, possessed a weight and an importance all its own. It is quite possible that, taken as a mere note in the tuneful, inconsequent symphony of her social life in Venice, Barnard's expression of his sentiments might have glanced across her mind, leaving no definite impression. But the web of fate is wonderfully woven. Barnard had propounded those sentiments through the medium of a name, a name which was to be indelibly printed upon Clodagh's memory by the strangely opportune appearance of its owner. At the moment when the gondolas passed, at the moment when Barnard laughingly explained the stranger's identity, the name of Walter Gore took on a new significance became a personal element in touch with her own existence. In studying the effect of this incident upon her actions, it must be borne in mind that Clodagh's moral position was strangely incongruous, a position to which not one amongst her new acquaintances possessed the key. She was a married woman with vitality, the curiosity, the sense of adventure of a girl in her first season. She was like a plant that, having been shut for long in dark places, is suddenly exposed to the influences of warmth and light. She glowed, she blossomed, she expanded under every passing touch. As she leant back against the cushions of the gondola and met the amused and quizzical glance that accompanied Barnard's explanation, 
her thoughts sprang forward under a certain stimulus of excitement. Her blood, the blood of a reckless, adventurous race, leaped suddenly in response to a new idea. She looked up at her companion, her face glowing, her hands clasped lightly in her lap. "'Mr. Bernard,' she said, "'will Sir Walter Gore be at the Palazzo Uccini tonight?' Bernard met her glance. For a moment he studied her whimsically, then he responded by putting a question of his own. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he asked, "'is it true that when you dare an Irish woman to do a certain thing, that thing is as good as done?' Clodagh's lashes fluttered, and she colored hotly. Then, with the naive defiance, the intoxication of youthful assurance, she lifted her eyes again and gave another bright, clear laugh. Two unanswered questions should be as good as one reply,' she said, looking straight into his face. All that day Clodagh went about her concerns with a delightful furtive sense of things to come. In the evening she came down to dinner, arrayed in a dress of lace and embroidery that had come from Vienna only three weeks before. The dress possessed sweeping lines that defined her slight figure, and above the jeweled lace of the bodice her graceful shoulders, smooth as ivory, and as warm in tone, showed bare of any ornament. The faint olive of her skin was enriched by the natural color of her dress, and in the bright light of the hotel rooms the underlying gleam of gold was distinctly visible in her brown hair. Her whole appearance as she entered the dining-room was subtly attractive and in every detail of her expression pleasure and anticipation gleamed like tangible things. From the color that wavered in her cheeks to the dilated pupils that turned her eyes from hazel to black, she was the embodiment of eager expectation. Neither Deerhurst, Seracold, nor Barnard dined at the hotel that night, but from the eyes of more than one stranger she read the assurance that she had not arrayed herself in vain and youthfully conscious of a subtle, impersonal success, her eager spirits rose high. Regardless of Milbank's monosyllabic answers, she kept up a stream of conversation, and at last when she rose with the general company she did not leave the room but paused with her hand on the back of his chair. "'I am going for my cloak, James,' she said. "'Mr. Barnard is to call for me. Shall we say good-night now?' Her face, as she bent forward, leaning over his shoulder, was filled with a bright preoccupation. The scene was no new one, nor was its lesson new. It merely expounded the eternal disparity between the present generation and the past. On the one hand was the patient surrender of the being who has known life with its poor compensations and its tardy requitals. On the other, the impatience, the ardor, the egotism of the being who longs to understand, to tear the bandage from his blind, curious eyes, to shake the fetters from its eager, groping hands. It was a scene that is enacted every day of every year by fathers and daughters, mothers and sons, a scene in which daily and yearly a merciful nature mitigates the tragic truth by means of a blessed sanity and instinctive renunciation. But this was no case for natural healing balm. This was no case of father and daughter, but of husband and wife. "'Shall we say good-night?' Clodagh asked again. Milbank started and looked up, and something in her warm beauty, something in her gracious youth, affected him. "'Clodagh,' he said timidly, "'Clodagh, are you—are you very anxious? Will you enjoy this party very much?' Clodagh looked down on him in frank surprise. "'Why, of course,' she said. 
Why do you ask? His gaze wavered before her level glance. She looked round at the fast emptying room. No reason, my dear, he murmured. No reason, I assure you. Go to your party. Enjoy yourself. At his words she bent quickly and brushed her forehead with lips but so lightly, so unthinkingly that the act was valueless. Good night, she said. Good night, James, and thank you. She straightened herself quickly, and with a mind already speeding feverishly forward towards the night's amusement, she turned and walked out of the room. It was nine o'clock when she and Bernard arrived at the Palazzo Ugaccini, and already the deep purple of the Venetian night was wrapping the waterways in mysterious shade. But tonight she was less absorbed in outward things. An engrossing idea occupied her mind. She felt at once surer and less sure of herself than she had felt the night before. The time occupied in reaching the palace and mounting the marble steps seemed to her very brief, and almost before she realized that the moment had come she heard her own and Barnard's names announced by Lady Frances Hope's English servant. Her first sensation upon entering the salon was an almost childish satisfaction in the thought that she had dressed so carefully for it needed but a glance to show her that the evening's gathering was of a very much more important nature than that of the previous night. Quite fifty people were grouped about the lofty room, whose center and pivot was again the gaudy modern roulette table, and towards this table, with its surrounding group of gay and noisy votaries, she and Barnard turned as if by instinct. Nearing the circle of players, she saw that Luard, her acquaintance of last evening, was officiating at the game to the delight and amusement of his clients, while at a little distance from the table she caught sight of her hostess in conversation with a tall man whose remarkably fair and close-cropped hair gave her a sudden thrill of recognition. As in duty-bound she walked straight forward to where Lady Frances was standing, and as she murmured her greeting her hostess turned quickly, appraising in a single rapid glance her dress her hair, her complexion while she extended her hand with a cordial gesture. It may be possible that the cordiality cost Lady Frances an effort, that the smile with which she greeted her radiant guest covered a suggestion of feminine chagrin. But if so, no one detected it. Her welcome sounded genuine and even warm. "'My dear Mrs. Milbank,' she exclaimed, "'how charming of you to remember, and how charming you look!' she added in a whisper meant for Clodagh's ear alone. Then, with a movement of seemingly spontaneous hospitality, she turned to the fair-haired stranger who had fallen into conversation with Bernard. "'Walter,' she said, "'I should like you to know Mrs. Milbank. Mrs. Milbank, allow me to introduce Sir Walter Gore.' It was the affair of a moment. The stranger made a gesture of excuse to Barnard, turned quickly, and bowed with well-bred deference. Then he raised his head, and for the first time Clodagh met his glance, the clear, fearless glance, slightly reserved, slightly aloof, that carried with it the suggestion of the sea. His look was quiet, steady, and absolutely impersonal, and Clodagh, instantly conscious of this polite reserve, felt her face redden. She was aware of a distinct sensation of being smaller, less important to the scheme of things than she had been five minutes earlier. Her vanity was inexplicably yet palpably hurt. Her first feeling was a distressed humility, her second an angry pride. Then a new expression leaped into her eyes. Smartingly conscious of Bernard's interested, quizzical glance fixed expectantly upon her, 
she challenged the stranger's regard. "'How do you do?' she said. "'I think I have seen you before.' He smiled politely. "'Indeed,' he said. "'In England?' His tone was courteous and attentive, but neither curious nor interested. Her color deepened. "'No, here in Venice, this morning. I was in Mr. Barnard's gondola when you were coming from the station to your hotel.' He looked at her, then at Barnard, a perfectly honest, unaffected glance. "'Indeed,' he said again. "'I certainly remember seeing that Barnard was not alone, but I was remiss enough not to notice who the lady was.' For one second a feeling of resentment, almost of dislike, stung Clodagh. The next her old daring mood of years ago sprang up within her. "'Where I come from,' she said, "'no man would have the courage to say that.' Barnard laughed. "'Assume a virtue if you have it not. Is that the Irish code?' Gore smiled. "'If that is the Irish code,' he said gravely, "'I'm afraid Ireland only echoes the rest of Europe. Assumption is the art of the twentieth century. The man who can assume most climbs highest. Isn't that so, Lady Frances?' He turned to their hostess. Clodagh stood silent. She was filled with a humiliating, childish sensation of having been rebuked, rebuked by someone whose natural superiority placed him beyond reach of childish temper or childish violence. The sensation that many a time in old and distant days had sent her flying to the shelter of Hannah's arms rose intolerably keen. With a defiant sense of futility and loneliness she turned away from the little group only to encounter the pallid face and stiff, distinguished figure of Lord Deerhurst as he came slowly towards her across the room. Extending his hand, he took her fingers and bowed over them. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said, "'I have just been mentally accusing Lady Frances of surrounding me by so many acquaintances that I could not find one friend. Now I desire to retract.' In the sudden relief, the sudden touch of unexpected flattery, Clodagh's mobile face underwent a change. "'Then you have found a friend,' she said. At the sound of the words Sir Walter Gore involuntarily turned, and seeing the old peer made a slight movement of surprise and extended his hand. "'Lord Deerhurst,' he said, "'I did not know you were in Venice.' They shook hands without cordiality, and having murmured some conventional remark, the older man turned again to Clodagh. "'Yes,' he said, "'I have found a friend.' His cold eyes gave point to the words. She laughed and colored. Again she was conscious of Barnard's amused, speculative gaze, but also she was conscious of the quiet, slightly critical eyes of her new acquaintance. Goaded by the double spur, she glanced up into Deerhurst's face. "'Well,' she said, "'and now?' "'Now I am in my friend's hands.' He made a profound and eloquent bow. Again she colored, but again vanity and mortification stirred her blood. With a winning movement she took a step forward. "'Your friend would like to listen to philosophy on the balcony,' she said in a recklessly low voice. End of Part 3, Chapter 8 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com